please follow along with me as I read this morning's scripture from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, I, I recently came across a social media post that had a tenor that you've probably seen before. It said something to the effect of, the Bible says more about not eating lobster than it does homosexuality. So hey, Christian, live it all out or shut up. Found it very interesting. It was one of those, you know, I don't interact on social media much at all, but it was one that I had to hold back there because of just the ignorance of such a statement, right? It completely misunderstands the Bible. But what I was even more troubled with, because it doesn't really surprise me that Unbelievers would have such a misunderstanding of how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together, but what I was really troubled with were some of the responses of Christians trying to interact on that, and just the degree of confusion seemed almost as high among Christians as it was with the person who crafted the original post. See, one of the things that is important for us as Christians is to know how to read our Bible, to understand how the Old Testament Scriptures and the New Testament Scriptures fit together. And so this morning as we begin our summer series, we're going to be looking at 10 reasons Jesus came to die. Of course, there's a lot more than 10, but this summer we're looking at 10. And the first one that we're going to look at really gets at this issue. We're going to be looking at the reality that Jesus died. One of the reasons Jesus died was to fulfill the Old Testament. <clears throat> to dig into this, I invite you to turn with me, if you're not already there, to Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to use this text as a springboard into a uh, broader Old Testament overview, and then we'll come back to it and look at it even more and draw some conclusions. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, passage just read a moment ago. I just want to reread verses 17 through 18. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 18. Here Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. First thing we need to make sure we're clear on is the fact that Jesus 
very boldly asserts that he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. In fact, in verse 18, he says, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, meaning not the smallest little mark of the Scriptures, none of it, he says, will pass away until all is accomplished. Now, these are big statements Jesus is making. And he's making them because he's about to say some things. If you know where he's going in chapter 5, he's about to say some things that would lead people to say, hey, wait a minute. This guy's altering the Scriptures. Or, or even, hey, this guy's rejecting parts of the law. But he's not. He makes that clear. You just have to understand what he's doing. And so a crucial starting point to make sure we have clarity on what Jesus is saying when he says that he did not come to abolish is what is it that he's saying he didn't come to abolish? What is it that will not pass away until all is accomplished? And in short, you can say this, his point in saying that he didn't come to abolish the law of the prophets is that he did not come to abolish what we know as the Old Testament Scripture. So he didn't come to abolish the whole of the Old Testament. Now, where do I get that? Well, the Jews of Jesus' day would often refer to the whole of the Hebrew Scriptures, the whole of, again, what we call the Old Testament. They would refer to it as the Law and the Prophets. Uh, sometimes they would refer to it as the Law of the Prophets and the Psalms. Sometimes they would refer to the entire Old Testament as just the Law. And so when Jesus stands before his people here and he says that he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, he's saying he didn't come to abolish all of the Old Testament. So, so Jesus is clear, and we need to be clear. He did not come for the purpose of setting aside the Old Testament. He didn't come to abolish the Old Testament scriptures. He did, however, come to fulfill them every bit of what's there. And this is really the crux of what Jesus is teaching. This is vital to our understanding of how we put our Bible together. So, what does it mean that Jesus has come to fulfill all of the Old Testament? And to answer this, or at least to begin our answer to this, I want to go to a very helpful cross-reference in the Gospel of Luke. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. While you're turning there, just real quick, this is, Jesus has just been raised from the dead, right? We haven't had all of the appearances yet, but the disciples have found the empty tomb, and so there's all of these just sort of um, scurrying around, you know, what's going on? Can you, can you believe it? And so Jesus walks up, and, and these two followers of Christ, they're not, not of the eleven, but um, a guy named Cleopas and an unnamed follower of Christ. Jesus walks up to them, and at first they don't recognize him. And he's like, what's, what's the matter with y'all? Why are y'all so upset? And it's really funny. It's ironic, right? They're like, wouldn't you just crawl out from under a rock? What? Are you the only person in Israel who doesn't know what's going on? And so Jesus, you know, asks them questions, and they start telling, you know, his, his story. We thought this guy was the one, and then he was crucified, and now they're saying that he's raised. This is how Jesus responds to them, starting in verse 25. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses, that's the law, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures. Notice what's going on. Moses and the prophets here is all the scriptures. He interpreted to them all these things concerning himself. That would have been a fun lesson to have been a part of. That's a side note. Later, right, he's meeting resurrection appearance with the disciples. And so drop down to verse 44 because he says something along the same lines. Starting in verse 44, he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, again, the entire Old Testament, must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So like Matthew 5.17, we see Jesus teaching that He's the fulfillment of Moses, or you could say the law. He's the fulfillment of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Again, He's the fulfillment of the entirety of the Old Testament. So don't miss this. This is, this is important. Jesus is saying here that every single bit of the Old Testament was always pointing ahead to Him. And thus, when He comes along, He is the fulfillment. And so, here's what I want to do. I want to spend a bit of time offering like a 30,000-foot flyover of the Old Testament so that we have a sense of what Jesus is talking about. And to do that, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. And by the way, don't feel like you've got to flip to every one of these passages that I'm going to point us to. I'll alert you to some to turn to. Some of them you can just jot down because I'm going to be moving pretty quickly. But if you go to the very beginning, in Genesis chapters 1 through 2, the very beginning of your Bible, we see that God created the heavens and the earth, and we're told over and over again that His creation was good. We see that God created the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, and that that was very good. God created Adam and Eve, indeed, you could say all humanity, to live in fellowship with Him. The only stipulation for Adam and Eve is that they were told that they could eat of any of the trees in the garden. Got all this to eat from, except this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we're told that everything was very good there in the garden. That is until it wasn't. That is until Satan comes into the garden disguised as a serpent, and he deceives Eve, and both Adam and Eve eat of the one tree they were commanded not to eat from, and in so doing, willfully reject God's command and sin against Him. See, it's at that point, third chapter of the Bible, that sin enters into God's perfect creation. And Adam and Eve, indeed, all mankind, lost their perfect relationship with God. As a result of sin, as a result of this rebellion, God cursed the earth. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, symbolizing the fact that this relationship is broken. And death enters into the world, right? Sickness, disease, everything bad about this life is a result of this right here. So that was a bad day. It was a real bad day. And yet it's clear from the Scriptures that it was nowhere near the end of the story. Their sin did not catch God off guard. He didn't just wash His hands of us. No, what you see in the narrative is that God had a rescue mission already in place. In fact, if you're reading through the Scriptures, you see that from this point on, 
The rest of Holy Scripture teaches us of God's gracious, glorious plan of reconciling rebels like us back to Himself. Genesis 3.15 is often referred to as the first gospel or the foreshadowing of the gospel. Here, Here we read that right after man's fall into sin, God curses the serpent, He curses Satan, and then foretells His plan to redeem those who are now alienated from Him. In verse 15, God said that He would put enmity between the serpent and the woman, or more specifically, very important language that we're going to just kind of follow. He's going to put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. He says the seed of the serpent will crush the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. So already, the very beginning of the very first book of the Bible, we get our first glimpse of God's plan to redeem sinful human beings back to Himself. And the rest of the book of Genesis, indeed all of the Old Testament, picks up on and unpacks this conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So real quickly, just let's sketch in some of the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, right? You go from Genesis 3 right to Genesis 4. You don't need a math lesson. You can count. But, but, but there you know that Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. Abel is portrayed as the seed of the woman. Cain appears to be portrayed as the seed of the serpent, especially when you see that he receives the curse. Cain kills Abel. And so what does it look like? It looks like right at the beginning, the seed of the serpent wins, right? It looks like the seed of the serpent has has triumphed. But God's sovereign over all things, something you see throughout this narrative. And God gives Eve another seed named Seth. And I know we're skimming, but we see that it's through the line of Seth that this line, this seed of the woman, is preserved, as you see in the genealogies, that it goes right through Seth. And by the time you get to Noah, once again, it's looking like the seed of the serpent is triumphing. You have all of this wickedness all all through the line of Cain and wicked people everywhere. And you know what happens. God wipes out all of the evil men, the seed of the serpent, through the flood and he preserves a particular line. Don't, don't miss what's going on. Sometimes we often just focus on individual people and individual names, but it's this line. He preserves the seed of the woman through Noah, reestablishes his covenant with Noah and his seed. And once again, we see God working out his plan through the seed of the woman. Incidentally, if you ever wonder why the Bible focuses so much on particular people, right? Other than maybe particular things, sometimes people are like, I wish the Bible would say more about science or more about this or that. No, watch what it's doing. The Bible is focusing on particular people, particular lineages, because it's all pointing to God's plan of redemption. From Genesis to Revelation, Scripture is all about God's rescue mission. In other words, from Genesis to Revelation, Scripture is all about Jesus. The next major event in the biblical story is Abraham, who comes through the line of Noah, through Shem, Noah's son. 
Here it's clear that Abraham is the continuation of the line of Abel, Seth, Shem, Enoch, and Noah. In other words, we're watching the continuation of the seed of the woman. And, and, and the stories of Abraham certainly portray his faith in God and God's promises. But we mustn't forget that in God's amazing grace, he, he's working out his incredible rescue mission through regular sinners, regular failures. Sometimes we speak of some of these people, or even in the children's Bible, they're, they're almost put forward as, as superheroes, but they're not. They're, they're regular fallen people, right? This is seen in, say, Abraham and Isaac's lying to save their own necks. Oh, it's my sister, when it's not, right? Or, or, or Jacob's cheating his brother out of the birthright, and so on and so forth. And yet in all of this, God is working out His plan of redemption. Now, much could be said about Abraham, but what's important for our purposes this morning is that God promises to bless Abraham and his seed. God chose Abraham, and he makes a covenant with Abraham. You can read about this covenant in Genesis chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17, and chapter 22. And there's, there's, there's numerous promises under this big overarching covenant. Things like God promises to be with Abraham. That's a big deal, isn't it? Presence of God. He promises to give Abraham a great name. He promises that he's going to take his descendants into Egypt and yet bring them back. He promises his descendants a great land. He promises to bless all the nations of the whole earth through Abraham's seed. For those who know your Bibles, you know that these promises are partially fulfilled along the way, right? Theologians speak in terms of typology. You've got this promise, you've got what looks like a fulfillment, and yet it can't be the full fulfillment, right? And, and you see subsequent fulfillments until you land on the ultimate fulfillment, and that's really important. And see, the New Testament makes very clear where all of this is going. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. I just love it when the New Testament really lays out what's going on. And so turn to Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. You want to tie your Bible together, think of Genesis 3.15, Galatians 3.16. It's a great tie in just a couple of sentences. Look at Galatians 3, verse 16. Now the promises... This is what we're talk, we were talking about. The promises were made to Abraham, look at the language, and to his offspring. That's not a great translation. I wish the English translations would just use the word seed because that's what's going on. It's the same word found throughout the Old Testament. The promises were made to Abraham and to his seed. It does not say and to seeds, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your seed, look what he says who is Christ. It's a divine commentary on the Old Testament. Paul clearly understood Jesus' teaching that all of the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. And thus, he makes it explicit for us here that the promise to Abraham does not reach its ultimate fulfillment in the making and expansion of the nation of Israel, for example. It doesn't find its ultimate fulfillment in Isaac, Jacob, or Joseph. Yes, parts of the promise along the way, right? 
smaller fulfillments along the way. But it's not the point that this seed is a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Can't be. It's only in and through the birth and perfect life of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only in and through Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, his burial and resurrection, that this promise comes to its ultimate fulfillment. It's through this seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, that all the nations would be blessed. Do you see? Well, after our narrative of Abraham continue to trace the line, the seed of the woman, and you go through Isaac and Jacob. And, and, and of course, it gets interesting when you get to Jacob, you start wrestling with, well, which one of Jacob's sons is ultimately the continuation of the seed of the woman? Joseph, though, 11th of 12 sons, so way down in the birth order, he seems to be the chosen one of Jacob. And later, when Joseph brings his two sons for his father to bless, Remember, he does the little cross-handed thing, blesses Ephraim instead of Manasseh, and so it would seem that maybe the line is going to go through Ephraim. And to be sure, there's a degree to which there's a blessing through this line. Second Chronicles 5 tells us that the birthright is given to Joseph and thus to Ephraim. And of course, we know Joshua, the great Israelite leader, comes through the line of Ephraim and is a blessing to the Israelite people, leading them through the conquest. Uh, and in addition, we know that Samuel, the great prophet of Israel, also comes through this line. So there's clearly a blessing in this line. And yet the rest of the Old Testament leaves us no doubt that the seed, that which we've been following, the seed by which God will one day redeem His people, is not the line of Ephraim. It is very helpful to note, and the more you read Scripture, the more you're amazed with the inspiration of Scripture. It's so interesting and, and, and helpful that you come to the Joseph narrative, right? The Joseph narrative starts in chapter 37, and it goes to the end of Genesis. But chapter 38, Judah and Tamar, put right there, right in the middle of that narrative, right? And, and it's, it's a tough narrative. It's one you don't see in a lot of children's Bibles. You've got this bizarre story with Judah and Tamar that, quite frankly, would fit pretty well on the Jerry Springer show or, or Dr. Phil. But, but, but here's the thing. If we don't get all bogged down in the morality of that story and focus on what's going on, the theology of the story, you will note that that entire narrative focuses on seed, which is a clear indication that something is going on, right? There's right in the middle of the Joseph narrative. It's as though the writer wants to say, ding, 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 don't miss this. Here's the seed. Here's the line. And certainly by the time you get to Jacob's pronouncing of blessings upon his sons, we see that Judah, the one who had come through that narrative, we see that Judah is the one he foresees ruling the nations. It's therefore through the seed of Judah that one would come who would redeem and rule over all of the world. And this is certainly confirmed when you get to King David, who's in the line of Judah. And you see God make a covenant with David. In 2 Samuel 7, God tells David, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your, same word, I'll raise up your seed after you, who will come forth from you, 
and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now again, typology is helpful in some respects. Solomon serves as a fulfillment of that. He builds a house for God. He builds the temple. But he doesn't fulfill all that that passage is pointing to. Certainly that forever kingdom, right? And so you keep reading on in First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. And they're very helpful because with only a few exceptions, they tell us of the failure, the complete, utter failure of the rest of the Davidic kings to remain fully obedient to the Lord. Nevertheless, there's this ongoing expectation that God will remain faithful to His covenant with David. And you certainly see this when you get to the prophets, right? You get to the prophets and Israel is falling apart. It is morally bankrupt. And yet the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all look to the coming of a future Davidic king through whom God will fulfill all of His promises to Israel and all of the nations. And this one who would one day save man from the curse would come through the line of Abraham, through the line of David, which is why, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew sits down to write his gospel, and he starts off, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right? Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Matthew wants us to see right from the beginning, ding, 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 look here. Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. He's the fulfillment of these things. Jesus and Jesus alone is the long-awaited seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the one who would be a blessing to all the nations. Jesus is the seed of David who would build a house for God, the, the body of Christ, and whose kingdom would truly be established forever. Jesus is the fulfillment of the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent as he did on the cross. Now, we're getting ahead of ourselves, aren't we? I had to finish out the trajectory of the seed. But before you ever get to David, you got a pretty important event, redemptive historically, don't you? you got the whole Exodus event and the giving of the Mosaic Law, but we must understand how that fits in all of this as well. See, one of the key questions to biblical theology, how we put our Bible together, is how to understand how the Mosaic Covenant fits with the covenant God made with Abraham. And again, <laughs> numerous sermons could be spent here. There's just so much that you could say. But for the purpose of a very basic overview, I want to focus on one thing particular here. And again, I want to go back to divine commentary on the Old Testament because the New Testament actually asks and answers the questions that we're talking about. So turn with me again. You might still be there, but turn with me again to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to read three sections of this as it talks about how the law and the promise to Abraham fit together. So start with verse 15 through 18. He says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring or seed. 
It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. See, one of the questions of biblical theology is, again, how these things fit. And here Paul makes it clear that the law, which came 430 years after God's covenant with Abraham, could never invalidate God's covenant to Abraham. He, he, he uses an argument from lesser to greater to make his point. In verse 15, he says that a covenant between two men cannot be altered. That's the lesser. He says, how much more than a covenant between man and God, which is exactly what God's covenant with Abraham was. Uh, then in verse 18, Paul explains that the law doesn't invalidate or nullify the promise precisely because the inheritance is by means of promise, not by law. And so he asks the question we're forced to wrestle with, okay, then why? Why then the law? Look at verse 19 and 20. Why then the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring, that's the same word, until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. He answers the question, why the law, in three ways. First, he tells us the purpose of the law. Verse 19, Paul says that the law was given because of transgressions. So, so, so the law was added because of, because of sin. Now, what does that mean? Well, if we expand our context to Romans, which I think is warranted here, then we can say that the purpose of the law is to bring about the consciousness of sin and, in fact, to exacerbate it. Romans 5.20, the law came in so that transgression would increase. Romans 7, verse 7 through 8, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. So, so the law came in for the purpose of bringing about our consciousness of sin and, in fact, exacerbating it. The second part of Paul's answer to the question why the law deals with how the law came into being and its place in salvation history. Paul says that the law was ordained by God through angels with Moses as a mediator between God and men. And in this, Paul wants us to see that this is subordinate to the covenant with Abraham since God's covenant with Abraham had no mediator. God dealt directly with Abraham. And then finally, he interacts on the place in salvation history where he asserts that the law was in place until the seed comes, which is, of course, speaking of Jesus. The law was brought in for a particular time in salvation history, that time between Moses and Christ. And this actually helps answer the why question, and we'll come back in answering the next question. In verse 21, he asks, is the law contrary to the promises of God? And the answer to this question will help us further understand why the law came into being as a whole. Look at verses 21 to 26. 
Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So the law is not contrary to the promise, because it serves a different purpose. It was never meant to impart life, because as he says in verse 21, then, then righteousness would have been based on law. Righteousness would have been based on, on works. No, he, he goes back to the purpose stated above and its place in salvation history. The law was given to shut up everyone under sin until faith came. The law was given, don't miss this, to point everyone to Jesus, the only one who could actually fulfill it, so, so, so that we might be justified by faith in Him. Now, how does that happen? Well, Paul illustrates this idea for us in verse, verses 24 through 25. The word that he uses that the ESV translates as guardian, some of your translations might say tutor, is actually a word used for a particular kind of slave in the ancient world who was chosen by the father and entrusted the supervision of his male children from the time they were young until they reached maturity. Here then you see the salvation historical aspect of this text that Paul's been driving home. Like this particular type of slave in the ancient world who would take care of the sons until they're grown, so also he's saying that the law served for a time in the history of salvation until Jesus came. Moreover, if you couple that with what Paul said in verse 19, that the law was added because of transgression in verse 22 that says that we were shut up under sin, you get a better idea what the slave did. That's where this tutor idea comes, right? The law came in at a particular time in salvation history to help people see their sin, to see that they could not stop themselves from sinning, and thus to see that they had to find their righteousness in another, specifically the righteousness that comes from faith in Christ, God's provided Redeemer. So, the law was a treaty between God and the people of Israel to manage them between the time of the Exodus and Jesus. It was loaded with rules and regulations for God's people, right, to set them apart from the rest of the world. The law has God's moral code in it, for his people, again, so that, they would, so that they would be different, the Jews, obviously different from the Gentiles, and yet, since they were unable to live up to it, just read the Old Testament, the law served to show them that they were sinners and in desperate need of finding their righteousness outside of themselves. And so now we've come full circle, and I think we're ready to go back to Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Go back over there. With all this context in mind… Maybe these verses hit us differently. Jesus, the one introduced 
as the fulfillment of the line of Abraham and David at the beginning of this gospel, Jesus stands before the people and he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus stands before his people. I mean, these were bold statements he was making. He stands before his people, and he's making it clear that he is the long-awaited seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David. And though they wouldn't have understood all of that right then and there, he's making it clear he's the perfect sacrifice. Think of the law of Moses. And all the sacrifices, the sacrificial system, he's making it clear he's the perfect sacrifice that would fulfill all sacrifices. It's Jesus who perfectly obeyed the law. And it's Jesus who, tying stuff in, I know where it's overview, but it's Jesus who would usher in the, the new covenant so that all God's people would have God's Spirit dwelling in them so that they'd finally be able to live for Him, to live God's moral code because that law law of Christ, it's written on their hearts. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. He didn't come to say, that was then, this is now, or that was wrong, or whatever. No. He came, and He perfectly fulfilled it, all of it. And you have to be clear, by necessity, when something is fulfilled, your understanding of it must change, Right? And so this is more than just a theological exercise. This has huge implications for our lives. I wish I had more time, but I want to hit one implication for unbelievers, and then three quickly for believers. First, if you're here this morning, and you've never trusted in Christ, we talked earlier about the worldview the Bible gives us, a biblical worldview, as God is the creator of all things, and God created man and woman. And we, along with Adam and Eve, we've all rebelled. We were born in sin and we've chosen sin. And as a result of that, we deserve the wrath of God. If you, if you take what Scripture says seriously, then we must say, as sinners, we deserve the wrath of God. And in fact, if you take what Scripture says seriously, you must be clear that the wrath of God is coming. Okay? But what a glorious thing as you read the Scriptures because you see that God is so kind and gracious and merciful, and He had a plan from before the foundation of the world. The fall didn't catch God off, of, off guard. He sent His Son, Jesus, who came and fulfilled the law, who came and was the ultimate sacrifice, right? Jesus laid down His life on the cross to bear the punishment we deserve to bear. And the Scriptures teach us that when we trust in Christ, all of our sin is nailed to the cross with Him and canceled, done away with, removed from God's accounting as far as the east is from the west. Friend, if you've never trusted in Christ, I, I would just hold that out to you to look to Jesus even this morning. Believe in Christ. For believers, let me give three implications. And again, I... I, I recognize even before I get into these that each one of them we could spend multiple sermons on, but first, as we think about Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, this must affect 
how we read our Bible. As we read the Old Testament, which we should, there are some churches who say, oh, well, we're people of the New Testament. We don't read the Old Testament. No, 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 no. The Bible never says that. We must read the Old Testament, but as we read it, we need to read it like Jesus taught us to read it. We need to read it like the apostles teach us to read it, how all of it's pointing ahead to Christ. And so if I'm in my devotions and I'm working through Leviticus, I'm not wrestling with setting up a new tabernacle for myself or anything like that. I'm looking and seeing how do these things point to Christ? How does Jesus fulfill these things and the blessings thereof? Go back to the Facebook post that I started with. If Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, one of the things that the law had in it is what theologians refer to as ceremonial barrier markers, things that separated Jew and Gentile. One of them is how you eat, right? And just think about Ephesians that we covered. When, when Jesus came and fulfills all of this, Paul says that he took down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. And therefore, those dietary codes are no longer in place for the people of God. That's why, that's why the New Testament says, take and eat. Right? So it's complete misunderstanding to say, well, you know, Christians, they uh, eat shrimp. They're hypocrites because they believe homosexuality is wrong. Well, you know what? I said earlier, the moral code that you see in the Old Testament, read the New Testament. It certainly carries over, right? You see Paul talk about the law of Christ. You see commandments. Jesus tells us what to do. He exhorts us. He, he makes commands. And so, yes, there's still things that are abiding for the people of God. But we need to look at these and see how Jesus has fulfilled them. All of the Old Testament is read in light of Christ. Second, as we think about Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, it should lead to thanksgiving, shouldn't it? Here, here we're clear, Jesus is God's plan of reconciling sinners back to Himself. And we're so thankful that He has provided Christ we're so thankful that in Christ, God has provided what He demands of His people. God demands holiness, doesn't He? The Old Testament says, be holy as I'm holy. The New Testament, if we continued on in Matthew 5 that we were looking at, Jesus says, be perfect as I am perfect. And we recognize I'm not perfect, right? Far from it. And if I try to be righteous on my own, I find that my own righteousness is like filthy rags before God. So I thank and praise God that Jesus has fulfilled all of the Old Testament and that my righteousness is Christ. That I stand before God righteous because I stand before God in Christ. Finally, while embracing that our right standing with God is only because of Christ's righteousness credited to our accounts, we still recognize that those who are redeemed by Jesus want to grow in loving Christ and living out what He calls us to be, right? Talked just a second ago of the new covenant. Through the work of Christ, God has done this amazing work of for those who believe, removing our heart of stone, giving us a heart of flesh. He's taken His law that was on stone tablets, and He's written His law on our hearts 
And you read those texts that talk about this internal work that God has done for His people, and you see that it's so that, so that we might walk in a manner pleasing to the Lord. And so as we think about Jesus as the fulfillment of the Scriptures, we want to be His people. We want to be faithful followers. We want to be those who recognize who He is, King Jesus, and submit our lives to Him and follow Him and honor and glorify Him in all we do. So let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. And Father, I pray even as we think through some of the content of a sermon like this that can be on the academic side, Lord, I pray that You would give us understanding of Your Word Help us to rejoice in it. Help us to rejoice in the majesty of Holy Scripture. Help that to lead us to more of a just standing in awe of the God who would inspire such an amazing plan of redemption and work it out in such a way where your people are blessed and you are glorified. And so, Lord, even as we stand and sing together, Lord, I pray that all of this would lead to us living our lives in worship for your glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.